Greetings, my friend, and welcome to Beyond Curious, conversations with brave adventurers like yourself that are taking voyages into the unknown to satisfy their curiosity, fulfill their purpose, and bring their ideas to life. My name is Brandon Fong, and I am beyond excited to have you here, and I'm beyond, beyond excited to introduce you to today's guest, Sean Swarner. My brother put together the website for the Cancer Climber Association, and he and I went to the bar. We had a couple of drinks, came home. After mom and dad sat down in front of the computer, they checked out the website. We hear, boys, get up here. We're like, what? He's like, we didn't get you through two cancers to go kill yourself on a hunk of rock and ice. Like, but it's something I want to do. I really wanted to do be the first cancer survivor to climb Everest. Guys, this is an insane episode. Like one of those stories where you just don't believe it's real or possible, but he has made it possible. And Sean is just an incredible human. And I'm just grateful to have spent some time with him and learned his mindsets of literally doing the impossible over and over again, as you probably heard a little bit of a hint from that teeny little clip. But let me tell you a little bit about Sean. Sean has completed the Explorer's Grand Slam, which is an adventurer goal to reach the North Pole and the South Pole, as well as climb the seven summits, which is the highest mountains on each of the seven traditional continents. And he's also completed a Hawaii Ironman, but my friends, that is not even the impressive part. Here it is. He did all of this after surviving not one, but two terminal cancers, where the second cancer, he was actually put into a year-long medically induced coma, which cost him one of his lungs. So he did all that stuff with one freaking lung. It is insane. Sean has an incredible story of great triumph to some of the world's most challenging experiences. And now Sean is traveling the world to share his story and how to overcome the worst of situations and motivate others to live a purpose-driven life. This is an action-packed episode to say the very least. And there is so much that Sean shares that completely transform your life. And that's not hyperbole, but as always, there's three things I would love for you to look out for. Number one, how Sean actually beat cancer those two times by leveraging what he calls vivid visualization. So powerful. Number two, why getting a high altitude cerebral edema while climbing Mount Everest ended up being a blessing in disguise. And number three, how to dream big and deal with people telling you what you want to do is impossible. There's so many transformational mindset shifts that can happen from listening to this episode. I am recording this intro because I just finished recording the, the interview today, but I know this is what I'm going to be listening to time and time again, because there's just so much that you can choose your reality. And at any given point, no matter what the heck you're going through, you can choose to tell yourself the empowering story. And that mindset is really what I believe has been the crux of what has served Sean in overcoming all these crazy things and going beyond curious to do the impossible. So without any further ado, please enjoy this incredible conversation with my new friend, Sean Swarner. Mr. Sean Swarner, welcome to the show. So excited to have you here, my friend. This is going to be a blast. Brandon, I'm excited, man. We just, I know we just kind of off, off air. We talked about where you're from and where I'm from and how cold it is there. And I'm in Puerto Rico right now. And there's a huge difference between the Caribbean island and <laughs> Wisconsin. Well, uh, well, we're going to talk about some of your adventures in the cold, so we can maybe leverage some of your memory to go back into the cold. So I'm so excited, as as I as I told you beforehand, I just had so much fun diving into your story and all the incredible things that you've done and the hope that you've brought to so many people. And I, I thought the easiest place to start would be to start with the day that your life changed. So you're 13 years old, you're playing basketball, and you go up for a layup and something happens. Would you mind sharing what happens next from there? absolutely not i wouldn't mind at all sharing i was i thought you were going to say let's go to the time that you know your your life changed it was like well nine months before i was born my mom and dad got together <laughs> but i don't think we would really get back that far uh, yeah to answer your question 13 years old it was so weird because i was just a normal kid like anybody else growing up in the midwest my backyard was a cornfield or a bean field and i was completely normal until that one day you mentioned when i came down from a layup my knee snapped it was almost like a, an audible you know when you're eating like uh 
Thanksgiving meal, you know, Thanksgiving dinner, you're you're chewing on the the leg of the turkey and the tendons and the gristle, and it's kind of snapping up. That's what my knee sounded like, and it was just this audible pop that stuck me in the hospital. And that knee injury literally saved my life and changed my life at the same time. And it was well, it was. Yeah, I was gonna say it was interesting because the. the Growing up in a, a small town in Willard, Ohio, they didn't have the technology to figure out what I had and treat what I had. They initially thought I had pneumonia. And later on, I, I was diagnosed with advanced stage four Hodgkin's lymphoma. And as a 13-year-old, the doctor said, hey, you're, you're first, they told my parents, your firstborn son has roughly three months to live. So initially, uh, when they were trying to treat me for pneumonia, I mean, you're not going to get any better and you're not going to cure cancer by sucking on a nebulizer. <laughs> So it, it it wasn't it wasn't happening. So they took me to Columbus, Ohio, a much bigger hospital. They did a number of tests, and well, next thing you know, I'm given a an expiration date. Hmm. I think I can't even imagine what that was like as as a 13 year old to experience that. But I know in 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 hearing a little bit about your story, like obviously your parents played a huge role in, in supporting you through this process. And they had some things that they supported you. So they, would you mind sharing a little bit about their approach? Cause I don't think they, they didn't tell you that you had cancer right away. Would you mind maybe sharing a little bit about like how they approached the situation? Cause I think that must, might've had a, a lot to do with your recovery. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and that's good insight because I think if you look at how someone's normally diagnosed with cancer, they go in, they get the test done. The doctor comes into the office and they say, you know, hey, for example, Brandon, you have cancer. This is what we're going to do. This is the type of cancer. This is your prognosis, diagnosis, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If they just flipped it around like my parents did for me, they said, hey, Sean, you're sick. This is what we're going to do. It's treatable. We're going to do everything we can to get rid of it. And oh, by the way, it's cancer. I think instantly I had a different mentality because yeah. the I would I, I don't know if this is the proper word, but the branding of cancer is something super negative. You know, most people are like, "Oh my God, you have cancer." We called it the C word, Sean's sick, but they specifically didn't tell me it was cancer. They said you have, you're sick, you know. But these are the steps that we're going to take to get you better. Yeah. Well, I, this is, I know this is going to be a theme, so I'll just say it straight up. Like, uh, I mean, one thing I've just loved in hearing your story and how you share it is like your reality is the frame that you choose to look through. So I love that that was kind of like an early glimpse that your parents kind of started framing things for you to kind of make sure that you were telling the most effective and empowering story to yourself at all times. Um, and, and so that's clearly something that you have continued to develop as you've done all the adventures that you've gone on. But let, I want to stick here for a little bit longer. Talk to us a little bit about life as a 13 year old battling cancer, like what that was like when you were, you know, not able to be a normal kid and kind of dealing with all these things, you had to grow up really quickly. So maybe share a little bit about your life in that, in that diagnosis and, and some of your early battle with round with, with, with that round of cancer. Absolutely. And, and, and even to go back a little further to your initial question and perspective, going into any situation, if you have a preconceived notion of what to expect, that's normally what you're going to get out of that situation. That's normally what you're going to get in return. So if I was going into the whole battle against cancer with this defeatist attitude, I wouldn't be sitting here right now. I'd be dead. Mm -hmm. But my parents instilled in me the possibility that, hey, you are going to get better. Everything is going to be okay. Looking at it, not, not from the, the, the glass being uh, half full or half empty, I had a full cup of, of water. And they instilled that at, at such a young age to look at things from a different perspective and not, not focus on the negativity, not focus on what's bad, not focus on the things that could potentially go wrong. Yes, you have to deal with those. But once you look at how to get around them, you, you focus on, on summoning that mountain, which we'll, we'll get to, you know, there are numerous, numerous ways to get there, find the proper path for you and enjoy the process. So I'm sure we'll talk about that, but they instilled in my mind instantly the idea that, hey, this is possible and I will get better. Not, hey, you might get better. Hey, you might overcome cancer. It, you will. And I think going into any situation, if you have that perspective on a positive spin going into it, expecting a positive outcome, then you're going to get that. So then going back to, 
let's let's just go back in time when you're 13 years old and you're in the eighth grade and you're getting ready for school. Most people are worried about the latest hairstyles. Most people are worried about where they're going to sit at lunchtime. You know, if they're going to see their friends, if you're going to pass uh, this little secret note, oh my God, does Susie like me? You know, yes or no. <laughs> notes that you pass in class. And I was at, at, at one point, say three months into the treatment, I remember sitting on the hospital or my, my, home, my bed at home. And I remember going into the bathroom and looking, literally looking at myself in the mirror and because I was 60, 70 pounds overweight from the prednisone, which is a steroid, every joint in my body was so ballooned up. I looked like the Pillsbury Doughboy. I was losing my hair. It was coming out in clumps. And I remember looking at myself in the mirror, staring myself right, right in the eyes. And I couldn't even recognize who was looking back at me. Mm. It, it, there was nothing left of who I used to be. I was this uh, undefeated swim champion. You know, who literally never got beaten swimming. And now I'm this ogre that should be hiding at home or under a bridge because I was terrified to go outside and have other people see who I look, see what I look like. So when I looked at myself in that mirror, I had no clue who I was. You know, I was terrified to even move forward with life. And, and there, I had no hope. I mean, that's the bottom line. At that point, I had no hope. And I remember going into the shower and, and it was terrifying washing my hair and literally looking at the amount of hair that was in my palms because it was just literally coming out in clumps and it, it wasn't you did, i didn't have to pull at it at all it just fell out and i remember collapsing to my hands and knees and all my hands and knees i could watch i was watching the water rise up in the shower because my hair was clogging the drain and i i lost it it, it was such an emotional moment because I was hopeless. I had nothing left and I was lost, absolutely lost because I was, I, I had essentially no choice. I had to fight for my life. You know, I could fight for my life or give up and die. And in that moment of, of, of utter helplessness and hopelessness, I pictured in the future, say month, month and a half, in my family, it's my mom, my dad, and my younger brother. And I remember just thinking about what my parents would be going through if they lost their firstborn son, if I died. And I couldn't imagine doing that to my parents. You know, at 13, they had done so much for me. They supported me through so many things. And this was going to be something else that they would support me through. But I couldn't imagine dying and doing that to them. So I think one of the reasons I'm alive is because I, I fought for them and I didn't want to put them through the pain. But I also realized that I didn't want to focus on not dying. I wanted to focus on living, which was huge. And I, I didn't want to be avoiding something I didn't want. I wanted to be drawn towards what I did want. And I think that goes back to the mentality that my mom and my dad stuck in my head at such a young age. 100%. It's like, driving the car don't hit the tree don't hit the tree don't hit the tree don't hit the tree yeah. and then you hit the tree right like if you're if you're focused on don't versus it's just a, a subtle shift but literally changes everything and I, I love how it's just so apparent how much strength that you found throughout your entire life in cultivating a deep sense of purpose through what you're going through to pull you through these these crazy situations and i know that it, it sounds like that's where it started of like realizing that hey I'm not only beating cancer for myself, but I have to do this for my family to make sure that they're here. And I, I know um, another interesting thing that might be relevant to talk about here is, is how you went about leveraging your mindset to overcome this, this cancer. So I would love for you to share a little bit more about visualization and how you leverage visualization to help yourself get through that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and as we all know, cancer is not an individual disease everyone goes through it. It's, it's a, it's a team effort. Essentially. It really is. You know, I had the doctors, I had the nurses, I had my parents, I had the support system. I had my brother, everyone was there helping me through it. And one of the things that, that really did sit well with me, and I, I still utilize it today is vivid visualization. And the mind doesn't really know the difference between vivid and I'm using the word vivid, vivid visualization 
and reality. You know, there have been numerous studies on it. You can check it out if you want to. But for me, I, I did this when I was 13. I remember when I was laying in the hospital bed and I could visualize myself. Well, first of all, I visualized myself doing two different things. <laughs> I'm not trying to recreate it by closing my eyes. Like I visualized myself swimming back and forth in the summer swim championships in the 50 meter breaststroke. And in my mind, I could hear the bubbles. I could hear myself diving in. I could I could see myself touching the wall, finishing in first place, looking back, and I was body lengths ahead of everybody. That eventually did come true. You know, about a year after I was put in remission, I won the league's championship, and I was body lengths ahead of the second place swimmer. But curing the cancer, I think, was a number of, of different things that came together. It was like the culmination of uh, like the perfect storm, but for a good a good thing. And I remember being in this almost like this microscopic spaceship in the chemotherapy IV drip bag. And as I was dripping through the clear plastic tube that went into a Hickman catheter, which was a permanent IV in my, my, my chest, it actually went underneath my skin, over my clavicle and dumped into my, my veins. I remember I could see my body laying in the hospital bed the door to the nurse's station out to the left. I would picture the television on whatever probably horrible rerun was on TV at the time. Um, my mom or my dad sitting on a lazy boy chair and off to my right side was a window to a courtyard, you know, and, and I could picture everything. I'd smell what was in, what was happening outside. I could, I could hear the rain falling in out in the courtyard. I could see my dad in all senses possible. And then I was thrust into my body and all these other microscopic spaceships collected in the heart, which is like Grand Central Station. And I could visualize from the inside my heart, my valves opening and closing. And we were all just waiting for our turn to get launched into the body. And I remember it was my turn. I got launched into the body and I was following a little GPS blip dashboard thingy. And remember, I'm 13 years old, so I have a crazy imagination. And I would follow it this way, that way, left, right, straight. And I would sneak up into the cancer cell and I would unleash these missiles and laser beams and everything else laden with chemotherapy to destroy the cancer from the inside out. And I would also picture in my mind a manufacturing, um, uh, what's, what's, what's the word? Um, Bear belt? Assembly line, assembly line. Okay, yeah. Right, so I had this assembly line in my bone marrow to make red blood cells and hemoglobin. Mm. And then at the same time, white blood cells to help fight the disease as well. So in my mind, I had this, this um, conveyor belt where the cell wall was made and then it kind of crunched up and then they dumped everything in. They put a plug on it and it launched out into my body. This is, ins I'm getting full body chills. I, this is just insane. Like so powerful. So is this, I, I want to zoom in on this because I think this will obviously, I think this will come later on in, the, in your story as well but like the level of detail that you went through that was just so powerful because i'm sure you felt that viscerally right you were experiencing that as if you were literally in those blood cells so like did you did you build out that visualization over time through doing it every single day you just kind of added more and more details because i'm assuming and correct me if i'm wrong like the first time you did it it probably wasn't that level of detail, but you probably kept adding to it and the different layers to it, or did it kind of just come fully formed like that? And you were doing it once a day. I kind of want to just drill a little bit more on this. Cause I think that that's just the level of detail that you got to is really cool. So we'd love to hear how that was fully constructed to, to the point that it got there. <laughs> yeah. In, in all honesty, I think it came from a place of boredom Okay, <laughs> because I was in the hospital for such a long time and I hated the situation I was in. There was nothing I could do about it. You know, it is what it is. It was what it was. But I could always take my mind somewhere else. I could always choose how I wanted to react to the situation. So I took my mind and my body away from the bad parts of the treatment. And day by day, I think I would add something else or I would take a different route in the body. You know, let's say I would take a trip to the lungs one day and I would, I would head to the spleen the next day. So I kind of got to know my body inside from the in, literally the inside out very, very well, but I would add different pieces of, like you mentioned, the components, different components every day. And I would do it every day, maybe once or twice a day, minimum. 
because I, I think it helped me in two different, a number of different ways. One, it, like I said, took my mind and my body somewhere else. When times were bad, I didn't want to be there. I wanted to be anywhere else but there. But it also helped me decide I was in control. Now, granted, yes, some people go through chemotherapy. Some people have uh, have lost loved ones to to the battle of cancer. And, and my sincerest condolences to them. I know I've lost many, many, many friends. But for me, I think it really helped me win that quote unquote battle from the inside out. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna. I'm just gonna share something, and then I, what I'm taking away from that too is that, like, I think when you hear vivid visualization, it's like you hear the stories of p- people picturing the same thing over and over and over again. Which I think, obviously, you do do that eventually. But I love how immersed you made yourself in this entire experience that it took a whole mind of its own and that it kept evolving. And it was, it was really multidimensional. We just had our, our firstborn. She's like nine weeks old right now. And my wife just gave birth. And when she was going through, uh, we eventually had to have a C-section. I did this thing where to take her mind off of it, we've done lots of travel and I would walk her through a visualization of like walking through the streets of Florence or the streets of Thailand and kind of like, you know, we passed this thing, like all the, all the landmarks. And it was just such a powerful way for her to escape the fact that she was cut open and dealing with stuff. And, and, and that was super powerful. So I can only imagine that like doing this over and over and over again for yourself, it just made it more and more vivid, more of like a familiar place for you to go when your reality wasn't, um, you know, so much of a good place to be. It was stronger to be there. So I, I love that. So, I mean, obviously feel free to build on that if you want, but I would, I would love to know, obviously, eventually talk to us a little bit about what happened. Eventually you, you, you came out, you're still talking to us today. So we'd love for you to maybe continue the story a little bit. Um, and, and until the next, <laughs> another road mark hits you where you might have to come across something again for round two. <laughs> yeah. No doubt. Well, first of all, congratulations on, on the, oh, thank you. the new addition to the family. And I'm sure you and your, your, your wife are just going to make a tremendous parents, absolutely Appreciate tremendous that. parents. Uh-huh. And you know, using the vivid visualization, again, using the word vivid before visualization, it really does help the situation. Oftentimes, like I said, you can't control the situation you're in. Your wife couldn't control the fact that she had a C-section, but she could control how she reacted to it. And you're a huge component to that. You were a huge player in, in helping her with that. And that goes back to cancer is not an individual disease, but it's, it now sounds like what you guys were going through wasn't an individual journey. And it's, it's amazing how so many people think that they're they're out there all alone battling the, 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 the unknown when in all actuality, if you just look around, you're surrounded by your team. You know, there are other people out there who are always going to support you and push you forward. And that's, that's what happened with my second cancer. I was surrounded by so many people being a quote unquote normal teenager after I was placed in remission. But then going in for a checkup for the first cancer, they found a second cancer, which which was crazy because it was completely unrelated to the first one. It wasn't caused by residual from the, the treatment or anything like that. It was literally two primary cancers and no one's ever had these two before. It was Hodgkin's lymphoma, advanced four stage Hodgkin's lymphoma for the first one, and then advanced stage four uh, Askin's sarcoma for the second one which affects three out of a million people with a prognosis of 6%. So let's just hypothetically say you have 100 people with this illness, 94 people are going to die. And they, they had no idea what was going to happen because no one's ever had this two before. So they gave me 14 days to live. Yeah, well, they were wrong. I'm still here. And it's, it's, it's insane where so many people would look back at a situation like that. And so many people always say, oh, I'm so sorry you had to go through that. Well, I'm, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not at all. It, it was the worst thing that's ever happened to me, but it's also the best thing that's ever happened to me because it's taught me so much about life. And because no one's ever had these two cancers before, the doctors had no idea what was going to happen. They hit me with with everything, you know, all the nasty drugs that, that turn you radioactive, like you your urine glows at night when you go to the bathroom, right? So no, wait, I'm, is that real? Like you had glow in the dark no, tea? Okay, I was no. like, are you straight up Spider-Man now? I don't even know. That could be how you've done all this. Okay, continue. <laughs> that that would be really cool, though, wouldn't it? That was the that's the real <laughs> Sean Swimmer story. Cool. Is you got radioactivity <laughs> and you're able to teleport to the top of mountains. Okay, continue. <laughs> um, 
Well, so I, I didn't actually have radioactive. Actually, I take that back. I probably did have radioactive urine, but it didn't glow in the dark. Okay, but, all right, fair. <laughs> <laughs> because the treatments were so harsh, the doctors didn't want me to remember anything I was going through. So they put me in a medically induced coma for a year. You know, three months of intense chemo, a month of radiation, which that's one of the reasons I only have one functioning lung because there's so much scar tissue, there's no oxygen transfer, then 10 more months of chemotherapy. But what's crazy about the sense of smell and the memory, when you're in a coma, you still, you, your brain functions are still there. For, my, for me, they were still there. And I can't remember anything about being 16 except for that one month of chemo or of radiation where I was totally cogged, you know, it was... Um, like a moment, like an alcoholic's moment of clarity. It was like my one month was a moment of clarity. And when I visit hospitals now and I'm talking to cancer patients and laying in the hospital bed, it's so weird how the brain works because I will smell something that'll trigger a memory that I didn't even know I had. So, uh, and I'll look at my, the person who walks, walks me around as my handler. And I'm like, I, I gotta go. Like, what's going on? I was like, I just gotta go. Because I'll remember getting, say, like a bone marrow test where they took a surgical stainless steel needle through my upper hip bone, essentially, to aspirate part of, of the marrow. You know, and it was so painful that I passed out from, from how much it hurt. And I could, I could still, to this day, even imagine the needle going past my skin and dragging the nerve endings along with it. So... Those are the things that my brain just doesn't want to remember. But when I'm visiting hospitals, I'll smell something. I'm like, oh my God. Yeah, that's, that's been a, a memory that I repressed for how many years now? That's crazy. So you literally have a month of year 16 for you of just kind of being in and out. Go, your body was going through the craziest thing that ever it went through. Obviously, again, as you said last time, you're still here. <laughs> so, so you survived, they did it. And so naturally the first thing that anybody does going through two rounds of cancer is starts climbing mountains um, because you're like the, the third 300th person I've heard that's done <laughs> have that reaction. <laughs> but, but so, so uh, talk to us a little bit about how did, well, actually, before we get to the mountain stuff, I want to talk about the transition that you made from battling cancer to real life, because it's like that was that was your whole world. That was like, you know, and then all of a sudden you had you had this identity shift, like you're no longer battling cancer. You're 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 in remission. So maybe talk a little bit about like what was going on mentally as you kind of started coming back to the quote unquote real world of not battling cancer anymore and how you were able to deal with that. You know, that's a great question, because. Well, first of all, cancer is a global epidemic. I'm sure everyone listening and watching this knows someone touched by cancer. The crazy thing is when the patient is going on that journey, they have the support from the doctors, the nurses, the, the nonprofits, the charities, the, the family, whatever it might be. That safety net is built in there. And then when they're in remission, they're, they're released back out into the wild, right? They're released out into the wild. Everybody else who supported that patient now thinks, oh, that's fantastic. You know, they're, they're in remission. You know, my best friend's in remission. Great, go live your life. For me, I had the same, a, a similar situation. I had the safety net. I had the parents. I had the everything, charities, the nonprofit, all of that was there. Sean, you're in remission everybody. Oh my God, that's fantastic. That's great. Let's celebrate. My first thought was because I had gone to bed night after night being terrified to close my eyes because I didn't know if they were going to open the next day or not. That became my MO. Going to bed, being terrified, eventually becoming comfortable in the uncomfortable. And now night after night, after night, after night, doing that, being terrified, being terrified, slowly getting used to it. Doctor says, Sean, you're in remission. Everybody's fantastic. That's great. My first thought was, now what? Like, go live your life. Well, I've been battling for my life the past four years. Where do I even start to go live? I had no clue. So I literally went to college. I turned into a, a party animal. I forgot that I even had cancer. I tried to leave it behind me because let's, let's hypothetically say you're, you're at dinner on a date 
and you're sitting there cutting your steak or reading whatever you're doing. You're like, oh, this is fantastic. Yeah, I had cancer. It's not dinner conversation. How are you going to bring it up? And especially when, when you're really into someone and you're, you really think that you could see a future with that person, how do you move forward when you didn't even see a future for yourself? And it was terrifying. So I tried to leave it behind me. I just forgot about it. But that doesn't do any good because it'll slowly creep back in and it's always there. So did you feel that you were just in that state of lostness until you had this idea to climb Everest? Was 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 the idea to climb Everest kind of what gave you a sense of purpose again? Or how did you make that transition? Absolutely. I, I think I was floundering in life after the, the, the treatments. Uh, not that a 17 or 18 year old really knows what they want to do with their lives anyhow. But I really, I literally think I was just floundering around. I had no clue what I wanted to do. I thought I wanted to be a psychologist for cancer patients because I had gone through what I went through. And I, I know what my parents went through and what my brother went through. I know I wanted to give back and help others. But I couldn't help them until I helped myself. You know, anyone in, in any situation, you can't pour from an empty cup. So how am I going to help others if I don't have anything to give myself? And if I'm quote unquote broken, you know, I needed to look back and see how I wanted to react to what happened to me, mend those pieces, put myself back together, become stronger, either have it destroy me or build myself up and become stronger through it and from what I went through to move forward in my life. But at the time I had no clue. So I, I literally, I dropped out of school. I was working on my master's and my doctorate on, on psycho-oncology, psychologist for cancer patients. And that's when I decided, okay, it was perfect timing. My brother graduated from college. He wasn't sure what he was going to do anyhow. So he moved from Pennsylvania to Florida where I was going to school. And we decided, okay, well, let's do something to give back to people touched by cancer. You know, he went through it with me. He was a great supporter. And then that's when we came up with the idea and the concept of literally using the highest platform in the world to give hope to other people touched by the disease. So let's, so, so you get, you get this idea and then you go tell your parents about it. How did they react? It's actually how we did it was pretty funny. My brother put together the website for the cancer climber association and he and I went to the bar. We had a couple of drinks, came home. After mom and dad sat down in front of the computer, they checked out the website. We hear, boys, get up here. <laughs> We're like, what? He's like, we didn't get you through two cancers to go kill yourself on a hunk of rock and ice. Like, but it's something I want to do. I really wanted to do, be the first cancer survivor to climb Everest. You know, and, and if someone's going to do it, why not me? Why not for the right reasons? But the funny thing about my parents is they've always been honest with me about how they feel in in all the adventures that I've been on in my life. And they've also always supported me. They'll say, hey, Sean, we don't we don't like this idea. It's, it's crazy. It's stupid. But if you really want to do it, we'll support you. So I think that having that support system, as I mentioned before, going through the cancer with the support is is tremendous. Everyone needs it. I'm assuming before doing this, did you, did you have to get like medical clearance? Like, like what was the, cause like, it's, you didn't have a lung, right? So it's like, so, so not, not only did you decide to do this, like, I'm sure from the outset, like the first reaction, everyone told you was like, you're freaking insane. Like, so, so did you, did you have to go visit doctors and they're like, don't even try this, but you still do it. Maybe give us a little bit of, of that early start. I'm going to do this. I'm going to be a beacon of hope. I'm going to go shout. Can't like hope from the, from the highest peak of all time. I'm going to do this. And then you, 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 you know, you start talking about the reality of it and people are like, yo, dude, you have one long, come on. Like why? Like, so talk to us a little bit about like, did doctors <laughs> tell you that you shouldn't do this, but you pushed through it and did it anyways. Like talk to us a little bit about that. Well, the crazy thing was when I came up with the idea, I was living in Jacksonville, Florida. Like, I'm going I'm to go climb the highest mountain in the world, living on a giant sandbar. <laughs> Everyone thought it was crazy. <laughs> like That's not going to work. So my brother and I packed up our stuff and moved to Colorado. And that's where people started to take us seriously. And my parents, I don't, I would say 99% of everyone I spoke to literally said, you're nuts. You're crazy. 
it's impossible. It is physiologically impossible to climb Everest with one lump. And I was like, well, going back to one of my favorite quotes, it always seems uh, it always seems impossible until it's done. You know, and whether you think you can or you can't, you're right. So I I, I use that negativity to fuel the fire that that burned deep inside of me to make it happen. And I went back to utilizing vivid visualization. So even before I got to Everest Base Camp, in my mind, I was already on top. So I knew deep down in my gut, in my soul, in my in my mind, I was already I was already there. But we had numerous people say that because of my lung condition, I was going to suffer frostbite because of this, you know, the the whole whatever it might be. There were so many different things people said that I would die on the mountain. I wouldn't make it past camp two. Um, living in Colorado for nine months doesn't make a Himalayan climber. And I I, li- I didn't have much experience. I was flying by the seat of my pants. I do not suggest anybody take take uh, take note of what I've done and try to replicate it because I was very lucky. So how did you deal with that? Like, because most people would hear that and then be like, okay, maybe they're right. So like, did you have some kind of like a mental model or approach? Like, did you literally like whenever, like, like, let's, let's, let's teleport back in time. You're Sean that just decides to climb the mountain. I meet you on the streets and you tell me about this. And I tell you, Sean, you're full of shit. Like how, like, why, why would you ever do that? You're ridiculous. Like someone says that to you, what goes on in your head as you like hear that? Like, do you, do you just say, you know, thank you for your opinion. I'm going to go about it anyways. Like, how did you, how did you actually handle that conversation in your head and like, like actually move forward despite the fact that literally people were telling you exactly what I just make believe, make believe told you. That's <laughs> absolutely. I, I think it goes back to the concept of what I say is about me. What you hear is about you. Mm-hmm. In your mind, you're telling me that it's not possible because you probably can't do it. Not, hey, you know, you can do it. But when somebody tells you that's not possible, that's stupid, that's, that's, that's not, you know what, you're going to fail. That's them translating in their own mind somebody else's perspective and in, in their own abilities. Mm. So I, I would take that with a grain of salt, say thank you very much, and use it as fuel for the fire. And, and use it to to prove them wrong. So I'll take it internally and I'll take that negativity and transform it into a positive outcome. That's a writer downer. I got I got full body chills from that one. What I say <laughs> is about me. What you hear is about you. What a powerful filter to just put on, right? Like, and that's so true because it's like everybody's reacting from their own bias, their own experiences. And uh, as as I'm sure some people were legitimately concerned about your health, like they they were reflecting their insecurities on on you. And and so I think that's a really empowering thing to to learn. So um, let's, let's, let's play like a Rocky montage in everyone's head. You know, you're, you're, I've seen you pulling, pulling your truck, like your, your Jeep on the back of your back with the, with the cables on your, on your Ropes belt and your, yeah, you're climbing, climbing up and down <laughs> uh, mountains in, in Rocky or in <laughs> with, with, with rocks in your, your pack and in your, so you're ready. You're on Everest. Let, let's talk a little bit about that first experience in Everest, because obviously this turned into something huge where you did all the seven summits and then you did the, the Grand Slam with the North and the South Pole. Um, but I don't think that was part of your your goal from the beginning. Your goal from the beginning was just to get to Everest. So let's talk a little bit about your your story on Everest, because there's some amazing things uh, that, that happened during that. So I think uh, like specifically what I think would be interesting to share a little bit about is that you had a, a setback that happened in that process of climbing Everest that turned out to be one of the greatest things that, that, uh, that actually allowed you to, to summit. So maybe talk to us a little bit about that experience on, on Everest and what happened. Absolutely. You, you have done your research. I'm very impressed. (laughs) What happened, a a number of things happened on Everest that were blessings in disguise. One, no U S company agreed to take me as to guide me up Everest. They they just did they didn't want the liability. They saw me as a liability, not an asset. So they're like, no, we're not going to take you. It's not going to happen. Um, and when I got to Nepal, I met with two Sherpas who just wanted to see what a cancer survivor looked like because in Nepal, a developing country, at that time there really were no cancer survivors. Mm. 
You know, I visited a hospital where the doctors told me 90 to 95% of the patients would pass away. So they were really anxious to meet me. And I think that was a bonding moment between the three of us uh, that really made the team very solid. They were super happy to see someone who was in a decent shape. And I was like, well, I better be. I'm climbing the highest mountain in the world. Like, I'm going to put some time and effort into training for this thing. And another thing that I think was a, a bonus was we only had at base camp my brother, who was my eyes and ears when I got up higher. Because when you get up higher and your brain starts for oxygen, you're, you become hypoxic. What happens is you you feel and you think you're mentally acute when in all actuality you're not. It's, it's like you're severely, severely intoxicated, but you think you're fine. And he was going to be my eyes and ears. If, if he said, step five feet to your left, done. Not even thinking about it. It's five, five feet to my left. So I had my brother at base camp. I had a cook at base camp, two Sherpas and myself. So I only had to worry about me and the two Sherpas. So there was a, there was a team of three people climbing the mountain, whereas in other expeditions, there were 10, 20, 30, 40 different climbers and they all had to worry about each other so for us whenever we felt good we would go whenever we felt bad we stayed at base camp so i think it worked out in my benefit to have such a small group on the flip side of that we didn't have any of the luxuries that other people would have like say generators batteries heat for example we didn't have any of that stuff but we also got to know the sherpas very very well while one team I'm not going to mention who they are, were yelling at their Sherpa saying, you need to do this. I don't pay you to sit here and play cards and drink Chang. Chang is a uh, a, a local alcoholic Beer. beverage. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, 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 exactly. So he was like, I don't pay you to drink Chang and, and play cards. I pay you to haul my shit up the mountain and do this, 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 set ropes. Meanwhile, I'm hanging out with my Sherpas and other Sherpas from the other expeditions. We're drinking Chang, playing cards, betting, and having a great time. Right. <laughs> and I can guarantee you, no matter how much money they're paying their Sherpas, if something, if the shit hit the fan up on the mountain, they're going to come save my life. Yeah. They're going to leave. And I'm going to go dudes. save their life. <laughs> exactly. So those things are, are, are really one of the same where it's something bad, but something good. Again, all, all depending on perspective. But there was an incident at Camp 3, which was uh, going up from the south side to set the stage. is base camp, and then there are four camps going up the mountain. And then from the fourth one, you rest and you shoot for the summit. At the third camp, on my way up for the summit push, I started suffering essentially high-altitude swelling of the brain, which is high-altitude um, uh, edema, right? And cerebral edema. And everyone from the other expeditions who were on the same schedule as us to go up to camp four the next day and then shoot for the summit later that that evening because you climbed through the night with headlamps on. When I physiologically couldn't move from my tent, you know, I, I remember going to bed the, the night before and, and eating freeze-dried or dehydrated beef stew, like the spiral noodles, the little cubed carrots and the green peas and the chunks of beef and yeah, it tasted great. It got it down, no problem. Went to sleep, woke up the next morning about nine, 10 hours later, and I, I had to get it all out. I, I vomited it back up. And I remember still, I could see the little cubed carrots, the green peas, the, the chunks of beef, the spiral noodles, which means my stomach wasn't digesting anything. It wasn't doing it. My body was shutting down because of the altitude. But again, it was a blessing in disguise because everybody else who left when I physiologically couldn't move, they went up for the summit push. The weather got bad. They turned around and they came down and lost their opportunity to climb Everest. If I wouldn't, and then I slept on oxygen that day, went up the next day, and it was perfectly fine. Somehow, magically, poof, it just went away. Like the only cure for one of the only cures for high altitude cerebral edema is going down an altitude, relie relieving that pressure on your brain. But I was perfectly fine a day later. And we got to camp four, no problems. We went up for the summit came back down, everything was beautiful. So it turned out to be a blessing in disguise that I got sick and we physiologically couldn't move from one camp to the next to go for the summit. But again, looking at how things happen in life and how things happen on the mountain, great similarities because if you focus on the negativity, you're going to be pulled down the mountain. If you focus on the positivity, you're going to be pulled up or pushed up. 
So powerful. And I, it, timing is always perfect, right? Because I'm sure in that moment, you're like, damn it. Like, I like this is like terrible. I have to go. I mean, maybe not you because you've done so much stuff, but I'm sure it was disappointing regardless of the situation as you felt like you were taking a step backwards. Um, and, and, and that ended up being exactly what you needed. Cor- correct me if I'm wrong, but did you end up losing someone on this expedition too to, to Everest that you, you would you mind sharing a little bit about that in, in that experience too? Sure, not 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 a problem. And I'm guessing this is probably the question that you asked before we started recording. Like, is there anything that's off off subject or off topic that we that we don't want to talk about? And this is probably the question, but I'm I'm completely comfortable talking about it. Uh, so there's a guy named Peter. He was from England, and I remember being at Camp Two. I remember there are four four camps. <laughs> so Camp Two is kind of like advanced base camp. It's much bigger than the rest of them. And we were at Camp Two. He went up to Camp three, which is on the side of what's called the Lhotse ice face. It's a sheet of bulletproof ice at a 45 degree angle where you chip down and out to put your tent and you put pickets into the side of the mountain. So you literally don't roll off and die. And a storm came in and I was at camp two for two days and two nights. You're literally holding up the frame of my tent. I had what micron thick fabric separating me from death and hurricane force winds. It was snowing sideways like I said, two days, two nights, just holding up the frame of the tent so it wouldn't collapse. And Peter went up to camp three in that storm. And when you establish those camps, you leave your tent there. So that way you don't have to constantly set it up and carry it with you. It's extra weight. So you have four different tents, four different camps. So he got up there. He couldn't find his tent. He hopped in someone else's tent. There was no food, no water. And because he had no food, no water for two days and two nights, he was delirious on his way down, misclipped on a guide rope and tumbled over 3,000 feet into a crevasse. And I remember looking back up at the mountain, that sheet of ice I mentioned, and I could see where the snow was no longer white. It was blood red where he landed and the streak that he left going down. And I remember, thank you, media, uh, AP, I think it was, a Reuters sent out a message uh, on, on the AP news line of the wire saying, anonymous climber dies on Everest. <laughs> Every single person who's climbing Everest has family and loved ones. Why would you do that? I know why, because it's the media, right? And they're looking for that sensationalism. So I, I got down off of off the mountain, camp two to camp one, back to base camp, called mom and dad on the satellite phone and just said, hey, I know it's out there on the wire. It's not me, I'm still alive. But the issue was it started to get into here where I started thinking, look, Peter just died and how many other countless people on the mountain have died doing what I'm attempting to accomplish? What makes me worthy of summoning this mountain and all those other people die? The same thing about going through cancer. I have have survivor's guilt all the time. You know, why am I still alive when so many people die? It it plays with your mind, but you can't sit there and, 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 and focus on Again, the negativity, you can't, you can't water that seed and have it grow into a weed. You know, I want to pull those weeds out and I want to grow beautiful flowers. I want to grow beautiful thoughts in my mind, not be pulled down by negativity, but that doesn't mean it's easy. Oh my gosh. That's insane. I just can't, I like, I'm at a loss for words right now. Cause I, I, it's just, I can't even imagine what that was like. And I'm glad that you were able to sit and call your parents and tell them that wasn't you, but eventually you had to cross that spot where you literally saw your friend. Like you saw a streak of red. Like, I don't know if you went over that specific chunk, but like, what was that like? Like, what was, what were you telling yourself in that moment as you literally passed the point where a friend of yours had to go and you, you decided to continue and push through it? Well, I remember I left the mountain. I left base camp to go down to the lower villages. So as, as you're hiking up to Everest base camp, and if anyone's interested, I, I take a group up to Everest base camp once a year, just for fun, you know, just to go mm-hmm. explore the, the truck up the base camp, the villages. I went down to, to just, regroup essentially and, and to get my appetite back to to put the calories back in my system to get ready for that summit push and there's a section that's really either comforting or eerie depending on your perspective there are these rock formations i think they're called shortens rock formations that are built up for people who have passed away on the mountain 
and I built one for him. And I, I got super emotional and I started crying thinking again, you know, now his, his family has to deal with this of him passing away and it sits there and festers in your mind. And when I went back up the mountain, I could still see where he went, but I, I just, I chose not to focus on it. It's, it's very similar to going across the ladder. So the, the giant crevasses going through what's called the Kumbu Icefall, which is the first section on Everest. And there are the huge crevasses and sometimes aluminum ladders are laid across these giant crevasses. I'll, I'll send you a video if you want to see how to take a video going across one. But wherever your attention is drawn, going back to you saying driving, you know, don't hit the tree, don't hit the tree, boom. When you're going across the crevasses, you're focused on the end, get across the, the crevasse. You're not looking over here and say, oh my God, don't fall. Same thing going up past where he he passed away. Same thing going past where there's a guy up there, he's just known as Green Boots, right? And other bodies have passed along the way. You know they're there before you, you climb. And before I got back to where Peter had passed away, I dealt with it here in my mind. And I knew how I was going to react in that situation. So when I wake up in the morning, I picture out my day. And this is just in general. I picture out my day. I kind of map it out. And I think, okay, for example, this this interview, right? Talking to you, having a, a great conversation. I know I'm in Puerto Rico. I know there's an opportunity or, or there's a possibility that we might lose electricity. I'm like, okay, well, how are we going to deal with it? So in my mind, I, I map out the day. And I think, okay, well, this could go wrong. This could go wrong. That could go wrong. Not that I focus on it, but I deal with it before it gets there. And I have A, B, C, D options before it happens. And then I kind of store that in the back of my mind. If it doesn't happen, fantastic, great. So when I got up to where Peter passed away, where he slid down, in my mind, I had already dealt with. Was it easy? Absolutely not. You know, I started tearing up again. But in my mind, I dealt with it before it happened. Hmm. So let's, let's go to the summit. And then there's, there's some other things I want to explore. So you're, you're at the summit and the entire time that you've been doing this, I don't know. I'm, now I'm just forgetting if we even talked about this, you're carrying something on your chest that's covering your chest and talk to us a little bit about that and what that experience was like at the top of the summit. Well, I appreciate that question too, because the mountain wasn't about getting the first cancer survivor, the, the expedition. The expedition itself wasn't about getting the first cancer survivor to the top of the world. It was about getting everyone touched by cancer to the top of the world. And the entire time I was climbing, I had a flag that was probably about this big, two feet by a foot maybe. And it had names of people touched by cancer. And it, it actually, when I was at base camp, my mom was at home and my dad were at home. And they were collecting other names. It was like a $25 donation for the Cancer Climate Association. And I was handwriting names on the flag of people who were survivors or patients or people who passed away. And there were three people off the top of my head, I remember, who I knew were battling cancer before I left the States to get to Nepal. They passed away. So I, I manually, like with the Sharpie, wrote their names on the flag. And the entire time I was on the mountain, every single step. I had that flag folded up in my chest pocket close to my heart. It was a constant reminder of why I was in the mountain. All those people touched by cancer, they were my inspiration. They were my hope. And then when I got to the summit, I essentially unfurled this flag and wrapped it around the top of the world. It was almost like an homage for everyone going, uh, going through cancer. And you'd been there before in your mind multiple times before. So like you, <laughs> you, you, thousands of times. <laughs> oh man, thousands that's so special. That's so special. I, I can't, I can't even, and, and, and now you've continued to place bigger flags with more names all over the place to, to so many different places. So I'm, I'm being mindful of how much time we have. It's some of the other stuff that I want to ask. So maybe, maybe you're always invited back for a part two, if you wanted to do a part two, but, <laughs> but there's, there's so much that I want to unpack in both your, your mindset and your journey on, on how you've done this and how you've continued to do it. Cause obviously this set this whole crazy journey that you've been on to continue doing this at the, at the peak of all these other mountains and then add the the north and south pole to it I, there there's because i watched your documentary last night and i was just it was just incredible because you know 
the, for you, for those of you listening, we'll have it linked up in the show notes, but it, it documents the final step of your journey, right? Like this 15 year journey you've been on of, of making the final thing. And now at this point, you've got media attention, right? Like you've been on the news and like everybody's talking about it. So like the thing that I was really curious to talk to you about is committing to doing something big before you've ever done it. Right. Like, like literally like this is, these are, we just talked about somebody losing his life on the mountain. Like none of this is surefire stuff, right? Like it sounds like, oh yeah, Sean's done this. He's going to do it. But like, there's literally every time you climbed a mountain, there was no guarantee that you were going to make it happen. Right. And so now you've done this for your 15 year journey, going to all these peaks, these summits, and now you have the whole world watching you waiting for you to get to the, the North pole. I think it was the final one. you got the flag with all these names on it. Like talk about like, pressure of like that you've kind of put on yourself. So I, I want to talk a little bit about this, I, this, just this concept of committing to doing something big before you've ever done it before. And the fact that you have the whole world watching on you, how you kind of dealt with that mentally of, of like taking a proper perspective of making sure that you're still safe and that you don't want to kill yourself. But, but the fact that you have all these people depending on you, which I would love to hear some of your thoughts on how you dealt with that mentally. Well, absolutely. And I think Obviously, yes, there are no guarantees that I'm going to make the summit, that anyone's going to make the summit, but there are no guarantees with anything. You know, there, there's no guarantee in life. The only guarantee is that you have to pay taxes and die. Like those are the two guarantees, those are the things that you, you must do. You know, but going up the mountain, going after any goal, there, there literally are no guarantees with anything. It's, it's how you perceive what you're going after, that pursuit, I think. And one of the things that, that still boggles my mind is how many people are more concerned about what others think of them than what they think of themselves. Like, why would I be so much so? Why would I be more concerned about what someone I I don't know is saying about me than what I think of myself? Going back to climbing Everest, you know, you can't make it. Well, why am I going to be concerned about what that person is saying about me? It's truly what I believe in my soul that I think is possible. So going for the, the North Pole, there was a lot of pressure. You're right to get up there. I mean, they filmed it. They put it turned into a movie. And my biggest fear was letting people down. You know, all those people on the flag. On Everest, there were maybe a couple hundred people on the flag going to the North Pole, which is a culmination of the Explorer's Grand Slam, the seven summits and the two poles, you know, there are thousands of names on that flag. And then maybe maybe this time next year, uh, I'll be getting ready to climb Everest again without supplemental oxygen just to see if it's possible. But it's, it's, it's being focused on what I believe is possible, not other people. I mean, and, and focusing on what, what I want for my own life, not what other people want for me. So there, there's that fear and there's there's that um, there's the concept of potentially letting other people down, but it's it's how you react to that fear. You know, is the fear in control or are you in control? Hmm. Are you making decisions or are you making are you making decisions based on what you want or are you making decisions on what what you fear that you don't want to have? Hmm. So in, in the documentary, there's this scene where somebody that you were going on the expedition with, like you had to, you had to make an evacuation because she was losing her, her extremities from frostbite. Right. And so it's like, yeah, if, our, our if, doctor. Yeah, it was your doctor. Great. Okay. Fantastic. So you're, 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 you lose your doctor. I didn't know that you lose your freaking doctor. Okay. Doctor's gone. Uh, fine. That detail. I, unless I missed that detail. I don't know how they didn't put that in there. So your doctor's gone. Like, so, so if you're, let's say you were in that situation, right. And like, you, you're like, is, is that something where you would just make the decision to like call it and then you would go back and you think you would push through and then you would just att attempt a, sec a second time? Like where, when you, when, when you literally, cause that was one thing I noticed in watching it, like you said over and over again in the documentary, like, my worst fear is not letting people down. My worst fear is letting people down. Right. And like, that's crazy. Cause it's like, you could have died, but you're, you kept saying like, my worst fear is letting people down. So like, if you were in that situation, do you feel like you would have pushed through and said, screw it. I'm just going to lose my, lose my fingers. <laughs> would you have like recalibrated and gone back a second time? Like, I'm just curious how you, how you, when you have that level of commitment that like how, how you would kind of behave in that situation or what you would, how you would think about it. Well, first of all, the, when the doctor had frostbite on her finger, that's her livelihood. Yeah. Like she needs her hands. So she essentially didn't have a choice. She she had to go home and 
she went back to London. Two days later, after she back, she was gone. She was back home in London with her family. So she was fine. Me, I don't necessarily need my fingers to work. So <laughs> <laughs> I think I would I would have pushed forward, but it also depends on <laughs> I think it depends on how bad it was. Like if it was if it was frozen down to maybe my first knuckle, I'd keep going. The second knuckle, maybe I'd turn around. So I guess, yeah, de depending on how far down the fingers and how many knuckles I was in, then I'd, I'd, I'd go home because I could always go back. You know, I might not be around to try it again. So I have to take my life into consideration and, and weigh the good, the bad, the ugly. It depends on how many knuckles I'd lose. <laughs> okay. So there's a, a new mountaineering heuristic is is the the, the knuckle... How many knuckles you can lose before you <laughs> before you consider yourself letting two thousand people down? That's that's nuts. Because I mean, I, I it's just your your resolve is just insane. I can't even. That, that's just kind of hilarious. You're talking about depends on how many knuckles it is. That's great. Um. So so, <laughs> um. Man, well, this is this has been this has been so much fun, Sean. I want to be respectful of your time because I know we're we're kind of coming up towards the end here. Uh, there's so many things I, I could ask you about, but I, I'd love to ask this, and then we can kind of wrap things up. One one thing I've been enjoying asking guests or the end is, you know, we're, we're on the Beyond Curious podcast and I'm just curious how curiosity has played a role in your life. If you can maybe talk about the role that curiosity has played in your life as you've done all these crazy things. Absolutely. Because in every situation, actually, no, I take that back. I was talking to a guy who's a college friend and he said that I opened his mind with two words when we were in college. We were driving back from the grocery store and we went by this dive bar, right? And I asked him, what's it like in there? He's like, I've never been. And I said, why not? And it kind of opened his mind. He's like, huh, yeah, why not? Like, why I've never been in there? Well, because I, I'm i not comfortable there. You know, every, everything that I've done and everything I've been through has me so curious about life, so curious about everything. I've been to 70 different countries. I've been adopted into a different culture in India, a different culture in Africa. Like I said, I take a group up Kilimanjaro every year. I was adopted into the Chaga tribe. They literally call me Mizuko Kicha, which means in Swahili, crazy white man. So <laughs> I was adopted into that tribe. <laughs> and, and I was adopted into uh, the Nepalese culture, adopted into a, an Argentine culture. But I, I love being curious because when you're not curious and you're sitting here comfortable, you think you know everything. How giant is the world? How much of it haven't we explored? How much of it have not have have I not seen? How much of it have you not seen? What do you? I'm curious. What do you, what do you have set up for 2024? Where do you want to travel? What do you want to see? What do you want to do? Is that an actual question? You want me to answer that? That, okay. that, that is an actual question. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, the biggest thing for me right now, my big impossible is uh, I, I set a goal for my 30th birthday. I want to celebrate my 30th birthday on Curiosity Island. Uh, so this is the thing that I'm chasing after right now is I'm building my own mastermind. It's called Curiosity Island. It's actually at the date of this recording, it's launching in a few weeks from now. But um, this is the first year I'm building that out uh, where I'm starting to build this community of curiosity-driven, purpose-led entrepreneurs. Uh, and, and, and my vision is to make it happen in reality. And it actually crazily manifested in a few months from now, I'm actually going to Richard Branson's Necker Island. Uh, I was that, that opportunity showed up a few months after I declared that to the universe that I wanted an island. And then I found an opportunity to go to Necker. But anyways, that's my big focus for 2024 is building Curiosity Island. <laughs> that's fantastic. And then the next, the next follow-up question is what's preventing you from doing it? nothing i'm i'm full in on it and and yeah that and that's part of why like this is the selfish question behind you know something big and obviously this is nothing at scale but like it's like any time that you're doing something that's never been done before you always have that hesitation right but like you have to make the commitment you have to talk about it right like how am i going to find an island if i don't tell people about the fact that i need an island right now and i've had a few people say i got an island or two if you <laughs> i know some people that get an <laughs> island but but yeah so anyways thanks for letting me play along a little bit but that's a little bit about 2024 and my curiosity <laughs> Oh, it's fantastic. And, and so many people have never, they never even get to that situation. You know, they, they never get to that point in their life because they're so comfortable. But look, if, if you're not curious, then how are you going to explore the world? How are you going to explore yourself? How are you going to get better? Yeah, 100%. Amazing. Well, such an amazing answer from uh, somebody that is truly beyond curious. You've gone beyond curious more times than is most people would 
say is humanly possible. Like you've gone past the point of curiosity Island. I think that's kind of like your superpower in, in, in multiple components. So this has been so amazing, Sean, where can people find out a little bit more about your journey? If they want to continue watching you climb Everest without oxygen tapes to a shark. Well, <laughs> I don't know what whatever the next thing is juggling, juggling fire. We'll go. I don't know. What's Where can they find out about your journey? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the easiest question yet. Yeah, they can Sean Swinner.com just like Sean, okay. Sean Connery, the proper Irish spelling. And then Warner brothers with an S Sean Swinner.com. Okay. Easy. Amazing. Well, I'm just going to really quickly have a conversation with you listening right now. And I just want to say, you could be listening to so many other podcasts. You could be doing so many other things, but you chose to be here and you're still listening to my voice right now, which means you've hung on for one hell of a journey. So there, oh man, the reason why I'm a podcaster is because podcasts have changed my life. Like there, this is the kind of stuff that I live for. And there is more than one thing. There's 20, 30 things in here that can absolutely change someone's life. So I'm grateful that you're here because clearly that stuff is, is hit, hit your brain, right? And that can make a, make, make a massive contribution. But my ask is that if you've heard something that has impacted you, you just take a second and share this, whether that was hearing John's double bout with cancer, literally having like impossible odds and coming back through there and then doing impossible over and over and over again. Or I would say the biggest quotable for me is what I say is about me and what you hear is about you. Like that one thing right there could just make a massive impact. So my ask is if you're listening to this and you know one person that would benefit from this, you have no idea the impact that you can make if you just share this. And uh, man, whether you do that or not, I'm so grateful for you here. And, and Sean, any final things you want to say before we wrap up for today? Final words. I don't think so. I think we're good. We covered everything. I'm sure as soon as we say goodbye, something will pop up. But no, okay. I, I'm I'm eternally grateful for uh, having the opportunity to go beyond curious and uh, have the experience with you, Brandon. I really appreciate it, man. So thanks so much. Yeah, thank you, Sean. This has been a blast. And we'll talk to you soon, my friend.